Welcome to session five of the uh, series on the revelation of the apostolic church structure for end time harvest and revival. Or, put another way, revelation of the care ministry. Uh, in the previous session, we talked about um, God being the creator, created natural principles, and he created the natural principles in order to be able to help us understand spiritual things because we're of the earth, earthy. He's the Lord from heaven. And we talked about comparing his comparison of the church to a natural body and how those parallel. We compared the church to a family with a father and a mother uh, leading a family. We talked about the shepherd and the sheep. In this session, uh, which is really, uh, everything in this session is really a product of the previous especially, uh, we want to talk about unity and its effect on revival and how to have true unity. Uh, unity is not uniformity. So how do you take all these diverse people, all these diverse lives, and bring together true unity? How do we do that? The Greek word uh, that we've discussed before, koinoia, which in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, was translated fellowship, that, that where the scripture says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Uh, it means sharing, mutual communication, communion, close association, and joint participation. One more time. The word translated fellowship means sharing, mutual communication, communion, close association, and joint participation. This fellowship goes far deeper than just after church socializing. It is not possible to provide an atmosphere where koinoia can take place in the context of a church service. That's not the idea of a church service. That's not what a church service is supposed to do. If, if you don't have unity before you come to church, you're not going to get unity at church. If you don't have some way to bring this unity about, some part of your structure, some part of your church's ministry, your church's schedule that have activities or, or, or applications of principles that will allow this koinoia to this fellowship that produces true unity to take place, then you're not going to have unity when you get to church. You're not going to. In fact, part of the, part of the thing with church service is an attempt to have some degree of unity. That's why we all usually start out singing the same songs. We're singing the same words, same tempo. And, and part of that, it, part of it, of course, is to enter the presence of the Lord with singing. But part of that is to bring all these diverse people who have come in from all these different situations in their lives, all this stuff going on in their life, and attempting to get them to say the same thing and to sing the same thing is an attempt to foster some kind of unity. And, and of course, that is important and it works, but it does not produce the true lasting unity necessary to be the conduit of revival. And we'll talk about here in a little bit all the scriptures, especially the book of Acts, that, that demonstrate the correlation between unity and true revival and harvest. No pastor is capable of providing 
this, this church service uh, or, or unity or an atmosphere of unity in a church service, either by ministry or by his personality. He can only provide an environment in which it can occur. If the church is dependent upon his ministry to meet all their needs, it will never have or develop cornoia. Again, the word cornoia, translated fellowship and communion especially, means sharing, mutual communication, communion, close association, and joint participation. One man in a pulpit doing all the talking while that is a valid part of the New Testament church ministry, cannot provide a means whereby koinonia can take place. Sitting in a seat side by side on a, on a church pew is not, it's not possible to categorize that as joint participation. You can't categorize that as close association. It's possible you don't even know the person's name sitting next to you. You don't know what kind of job they work. You don't know what kind of problems they're going through. There can't be cornoia with that person in that environment. Cornoia has two different dimensions of participation. One is a vertical relationship, which is relationship with God. And the other is a horizontal relationship or relationships, which is relationship with others. I don't have... I'm not participating with cornoia if I only have one of those two. It's both. That's why sometimes it's translated fellowship, sometimes it's translated communion. And we understand that when it says communion, it's probably speaking of our relationship with God, our participation with God. When it says fellowship, it's usually referring to our relationship with each other. Now, it does use the word fellowship, relationship with our fellowship with God, and communion also uh, involves us being involved with other people in the communion, but still, there's joint participation and close association are all equally valid definitions of this word, and true unity in a church can only take place through an environment that promotes and accomplishes koinoia. And if true unity is necessary to have revival and harvest, then how are we going to have revival and harvest if we have no part of our structure, no part of our ministry that encourages and allows the creation and participation in koinonia? These two relationships, the vertical and the horizontal, are intricately related to each other. In fact, they are mutually dependent one upon another. The strength and stability of the vertical relationship, the spiritual relationship with the Lord, is dependent upon the base or the foundation of our lives, which is the horizontal relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, 1 John 4, 20 and 21 says, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this is the commandment, uh, have, and this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. It's a commandment. And I know people who've been in church a long time, and they think because they got their little clique of, click of friends, that they're somehow fulfilling this. But I got a question. Uh, there are internet dating sites that are supposed to be trying to match you up with your mate. <laughs> 
And how do they do that? They have you fill out this survey of all your likes and dislikes. They put that in the computer. And then the computer program compares that with all these other people and their answers. And they give you this list of names. Uh, if you're a male or females, females with males. And, and, and you, 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 you can meet this person who likes all the things you like, dislikes all the things you like. Now, if love is what you give and not what you get, how do I love, some, how do I love somebody that loves me, loves everything I love, hates everything I hate? How do I do that? There's no choice in that. Love is a choice. There's no choice in that. I like Burger King. I like Whoppers. My wife doesn't like fast food. Whenever I go sit in a restaurant with her where they put a menu on the table, I promise you she knows I'm sitting there because I love her. When she goes to Burger King with me, I know she's only there because she loves me. Because that's not my preference. Those aren't her preferences. When God made Eve, he called her a help meet. The Hebrew word there means the other half of self. That's for something to be the other half of you, it's the opposite of you. So, the dating sites work because it's not hard. The Bible says no man's ever yet hated his own flesh. So, what challenge is there in loving somebody that loves everything I like? There should be no conflicts. But there's no choice either. And that person I'm loving, they don't ever know if I'm doing what I'm doing because I love them or because I love what we're doing. Because there's no choice. I love that, I'm going to do that. I don't like that, I'm not going to do that. If they love the same things I love, hate the same things I hate, then there's never any choices. There's no way to describe or exhibit love. So if in a church, everybody's got their own little clique, and they, they think they're satisfying the Word of God because they love one another, but they don't, they don't associate with anybody in the church that's different than them. Don't show, show, associate with anybody in the church that has different likes and dislikes, different preferences, different culture. There's no love of God. There's love of God. It's not hard to love your clique. Because your clique is your pals, your buddies, your girlfriends. They like they, they like to go where you go. They like to do the stuff you do. It's not hard to get them to go. No problem. Churches and churches that are full of clique have no unity. And it's not because they're bad people. And it's not because the people in the cliques are bad, are bad people. It's that they don't, they're not learning to love one another. And they sure don't have koinoia. Because they're not participating. They're not participating in what God wants them to do. It is impossible to develop our horizontal relationships in a church service type environment. It's impossible. A completely different structure and format must be provided to facilitate this growth. Spiritual people who never truly develop loving relationships with other saints frequently become unstable and eventually become judgmental of others because they, have, they never learn to have compassion on others. Their relationship with God is all about themselves. Now, I've, I've said some of this in other sessions, but I'm a teacher and I'm repeating it. Horizontal relationships I have with my brothers and sisters becomes the foundation of my vertical relationship between me and God. And if I learn to love each, if we learn to love each other, forgive each other, and to be forgiven by others, then when we have this relationship with God, we're not judgmental of others. 
But you can't create the horizontal relationship in church. You can't create an atmosphere where you can develop horizontal relationship in church. It's not the purpose of a church service. And the function and format of a church service doesn't accomplish that. Well, here's the problem. You can't have growth and harvest without unity. You can't have unity without koinoia. You can't have koinoia without having some part of your ministry, some part of your structure that provides an opportunity for this to grow among the people. Well, I don't want to do all this. I, 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 that's too far out. It's too what? Then you're saying you don't want growth and you don't want unity and you don't want koinoia and you'd rather hang on to the way things are than to provide for this to happen. I know that's very straightforward. But you've got to understand something. That's the choice you're making. Jesus prayed for unity in the church. This is an amazing thing. John 17, verse 20 and 21. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Now that's, is it possible that our churches aren't growing because the world looks at us and says, there's no love there. There's no unity there. I mean, how many churches are black or white churches? Ah, but it doesn't stop there. How many churches are middle class blacks, low income blacks, high income blacks, low income whites, middle class whites, high income whites? How many is the churches made up of educated people? How much church is made up of non-educated people? It's all segregated out. There's no unity. Heaven's not going to be like that. But the world looks at that and they say, there's no reality there. There's no reality there. A man of God has said many times, if you reach the people nobody wants, God will give you the people everybody wants. I believe that. Why? Because when you're reaching people that aren't like you, you're demonstrating the love of God. John the Baptist was put in jail. He sent his disciples to Jesus. Are you the one to come? Or we look for another? Jesus said, go tell John what you see. Blind see, deaf hear, dumb speak, lame walk, dead are raised, lepers cleansed, dead are raised. And then listen to the last one in that order. And the poor have the gospel preached unto them. Well, wait a minute. What, how does that fit with blind seeing, de- uh, uh, deaf hearing, dumb speaking, lepers cleansed, lame walking, and uh, dead being raised? Because having enough love of God that you're truly trying to reach the poor is one of the greatest miracles in the church. But we don't have that. Because we all have our own little cliques, and some churches become one big clique. This has got to change. Not if you want to reach the world. He didn't say go into all the world and preach the gospel to people that are like you. He said go in the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He didn't give you and I the opportunity to decide who we'd preach to and who we wouldn't. Well, what about in the church? You know, some churches, you you, you got to kind of apply to become a member and they accept you or whatever. It's kind of like a country club. But an apostolic church is not like that. Whoever walks in the door and God gets filled with the Holy Ghost and they get baptized, 
It doesn't matter where they're from or what, whether they're like you or not. He's saying to you, I want this person a part of your body. Well, what if we exclude those people because they don't fit with us? You think God's really going to bless that? Sitting here today, and I don't, I don't have unlimited, infinite knowledge of the, the body of Christ, including and especially in North America. But in my personal, personal opinion, I don't know of a single culture church, a, a single church that is a single culture church that is truly having revival and harvest because of this very principle. So Jesus prayed for us to be one. If, if, we, if it's not hard to be one with somebody because we're just like them, they're just like us, why would he spend his time praying for us? If, it, if, if God didn't have to do a work for us to have unity, why would Jesus spend his last prayer with his disciples before he went out to Gethsemane? Why would he, have, why would he spend that time praying for, the, for it? Because true unity is a miracle of God. But it's a miracle that will not happen unless it's made room for. How do you make room for it? You make room for koinoia. How do you do that? You have to have a structure that allows that to happen. And it's not church. As our relationships with other believers grow stronger, unity will be increased. Through the unity of the church, Jesus is revealed to the world. John 13, 35. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. If, here's the condition, if, you have love one for another. Do I believe in separation? Yes, I believe in separation. I believe standards are scriptural. The Bible says, Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. That word separate in the Greek means to set apart by boundaries. That's what a standard is. It's defining the boundaries of separation. It's biblical to do that. Do I believe in that? Yes. But it didn't, this verse doesn't say, by this shall all men know your, your, my disciples by your standards of separation. That's what some teach and believe. But that's not book. The book is, by this shall all men know you're my, you're my disciples because you have love one for another. 1 John 4.12 says, No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and His love is perfected in us. This this word love there, when God says God is love, and this word love here, it's agape. The agape, love of God, is the energizing force that bonds God's people together. What is agape love? It's love in action. It's not an emotion. It's choice. It's a choice to love and to demonstrate your love by focusing on what you're getting, you're giving, not what you're getting. That's that's what's got to happen. That's what, that's what Cornelia is. It's the result of love. It's joint participation. It's close association. People are not going to jointly participate with each other. They're not going to closely associate with each other without the love of God being at work in our lives. And the love of God being at work in our lives is at work because He is wanting us to love people that aren't just like us. Peter Paul had a real problem with this. 
I mean, look at look at look at all the trouble Jesus had, uh, Jesus God had in getting Peter even to go preach to Cornelius. And when when there were no Jews around, and Peter was out traveling among Gentiles, it was all okay. But you let any Jews show up, and Peter started withdrawing. Peter called him on the carpet. Uh, Paul, Paul called Peter on the carpet for that because he was being hypocritical. Peter, with his influence, could have stopped some of that sectarianism, that, that separating of Jew and Gentile. But Peter wouldn't do it. He was afraid of what people thought. That's not unity. That's not love. As we said in earlier verses, God's goal, Hebrews chapter 6, and uh, chapters 5 and 6, and Ephesians 4, God's goal is for us to be perfect or mature. And therefore, we would be fruitful. Again, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, I know I've used this a lot because it's very pertinent to this subject on every level of the subject. And he gave some, he, God, gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The church that has strong relationship among the saints is united in purpose. And is fully equipped for ministry. And is fully equipped for ministry is a... uh, Let me read that again. I didn't read it very well. The church that has strong relationships among the saints is united in purpose and is fully equipped for ministry is a church that has reached perfection. So I'll say that again now that I've read it right. The church that has strong relationships among the saints is united in purpose and is fully equipped for ministry is a church that has reached perfection. Again, Hebrews 6.1 tells us we're to go on from or advance from the foundational stuff unto perfection or completion, maturity, fruitfulness. God has given the fivefold ministry to the church for this purpose, to bring us to this place. Not to entertain us from a pulpit, not for them to become our heroes for us to worship, not for them to be the personalities that we center everything around, but to bring us to Christ, to bring us to this place of unity as a body. The Lord's desire is for us to attain the stature of the fullness of Christ. Listen to the next verse. So, the fivefold ministry is given for the perfecting the saints, the work of the ministry, for the edifying the body of Christ. Or the Greek is literally, the fivefold ministry is given for the full equipping the saints that they may do the work of their ministry, that the church may grow thereby. What is going to be the results of that? Ephesians 4.13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. Again, not perfect meaning flawless, but complete, mature, fruitful. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Not the fullness of God. The fullness of Christ. Because again, as I've said in previous sessions, Christ trained His disciples to do what He did after He left. John 14, 12 again, He that believeth on Me, He that believeth on Me, the works that I do shall He do also, and greater works than these shall He do, because I go to My Father. We are supposed to be maturing to the place that character-wise and ministry-wise, we come to the place that Christ was. He was the Son of God, and He's the firstborn among many brethren. But it goes on from there. 
We will then no longer be tossed about by various doctrines. We will be rooted ground of the faith when we come into this unity and we come into this mature man. Ephesians 4.14 That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of many cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. How is this possible? And what is the primary conduit for this to take place? As relationships with the body are strengthened and fit harmoniously together, the church is able to be increased in an atmosphere of love. Listen to this, Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Listen now. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. A joint is not a member of the body. It's where two members come together. Those joints are the relationship between the members. If you don't have a healthy joint, you might have a healthy bicep, a healthy, healthy forearm. But if that joint, that elbow, is not healthy, neither one of those parts of the body is going to function properly. Joints are relationships. Keep that in mind. Let me read it again. For whom, this is verse 16, for whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. Our relationships with each other is what supplies the opportunity for koinonia, then unity, and then the move of God. By that whichever joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. Every single person in the body of Christ has a place in the body of Christ. Has a place in God's plan and purpose. It's not to sit on a church seat, occupy a seat, keep the rules, pay the tithes, live separated, and it's all okay. They have a place in the body of Christ. And when all of that is fulfilled, the verse concludes, maketh increase of the body under the edifying of itself in love. When the body, when the body provides an opportunity for koinonia, and koinonia brings unity, and unity causes love to be in action, then fruit's going to take place, and the body's going to be edified or increase. So it all comes back to this. What is the atmosphere in your life, your church, your ministry where cornoia can come about? What is it? The literal meaning of cornoia is the share that one has in anything. As I've said in a previous session, it was a legal term used in marriage contracts. It referred to an agreement to jointly participate in the necessities of life. This kind of commitment God wants us to have between each other. We don't just sit in the same building. We don't just put offerings and money in the same plate. We don't just sing the same songs together. We don't just sit and hear the same person speak. That's not enough. That's not koinonia. And without koinonia, you're not going to have the rest. So therefore, we've got to have a way to have koinonia. The members are the parts of a body are connected at by joints. I've said that already. I'm saying it again. The joints connecting the members of Christ's body are the relationships between the people of the church. If the relationships of body are strong, the body will be strong. Very rarely, very rarely is an athlete incapacitated because of a torn muscle. The far higher percentage of athletes that cannot perform is because of some kind of joint injury. 
Huge disparity in the difference of those injuries. It's far more likely than an injury to the structure which provides the joints to keep the body together and make it a body, or provides the, the joints for the members to, to be together and make it so that we become a body. It's far more likely that injuries will occur as a part of those joints in the structure than it ever will as a part of a member, a tendon, or a muscle tear. Arthritis. It's a disease of the joints. This is, this is so critical. A joint problem is a relationship problem in the church. If you've, got, if you've got joints where there's pain in the body of Christ, you've got relationships where there's pain. I don't know about you, but if my shoulder hurts, my, my, my hip hurts, my elbow hurts, my ankle hurts, my knee hurts, it's really hard to get around. It's hard to get around. It's hard to function. When a church has pain in its joints and its relationships between its members, that body's not going to function like it's supposed to function. Revival is not possible without unity in the body. It's not. Revival is not possible without unity in the body. We are called to steadfastly proclaim our apostolic doctrine. It is our solid foundation. Everything we must do must be built upon this foundation. But to build upon this foundation, we must understand cornea and its necessity. We must then structure our church to provide an atmosphere which will encourage the development and growth of cornea. I've said all of that. I'm saying it again. Our unity will then provide the conduit of revival. Acts 1.14 tells us that the disciples were in one accord before the Holy Ghost was poured out. These all continue with one accord in prayer and in supplication with the, with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Acts 2.46, this is after the day of Pentecost, after they, they got saved, and they continually continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking the, head, breaking, the head, breaking the bread from house to house that eat their meat with gladness and singleness in heart. There's unity before the day of Pentecost, unity that allowed the day of Pentecost to happen, and unity after the day of Pentecost. In Acts 4, 24 through 31, being in unity in one accord is what allowed them to have another dimension of the Holy Ghost given. Listen to this. Uh, in Acts 4.24, when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, Thou art God, and hast made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of Thy servant David had said, Why did the heathen rage and the, and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For of a truth against Thy holy child Jesus, whom Thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand of thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servant servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thy hand to heal 
and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, and they prayed in one accord, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak the word, speak the, speak, they, and they spake the word of God with boldness. The same people that just had the Holy Ghost poured out on them here, the same ones that were present in Acts chapter 2. So they still had one accord. In Acts chapter 15, 25, the apostles and the elders led the church in one accord. After they'd been discussing a problem, they came to a decision. And it says, this is what they wrote. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. They were operating in one accord. Psalms 133 tells us the anointing of God flows upon us through unity. Psalms 133, verse 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garment. This is just a sidelight here, but when Samuel anointed David, the same idea is there as was in, in this scripture. When, he, when Samuel poured that bottle of oil upon David to anoint him, it wasn't just a little smear on his forehead. It ran all the way down his body. It got in his clothes. He smelled all that. Well, that anointing oil is a direct result of unity. If you don't have unity, you can't have true anointing. And emotion. You know... People equate goosebumps with the presence of God. Well, I feel goosebumps when I see the American flag. I I feel goosebumps when I see the blue angels fly over in formation. Is that God? And because some people have goosebumps in church, they excuse all kind of stuff going on in church. They think that's God. Job said, a spirit came where he was, a spirit, not God, a spirit. He didn't say whether it was devil or demon. Uh, excuse me, devil or angel. But when that spirit came where he was, he said the hairs on his body stood on end. Goosebumps. So goosebumps can be caused by all kind of things. And if you allow goosebumps to be your guide, you're going to accept things in your church, your life, your ministry that aren't God. That's not the rule. That's not what we judge by. We judge by this book. This is our rule. This is our judge. And when there's no unity, and there's no selfless love, the agape love of God, there's no way we can approve of what's going on. We can't feel good about what's going on. How can we? God's not in it. Moving on, Philippians 2.2, Paul exhorted the church to be in unity. He said, fulfill ye my joy. That ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And again, more scriptures where Jesus prayed for us to be one. John chapter 17 11, and now I am no more in the world. This is his last prayer. The disciples were present. This is his last prayer. He, after he finished his praying, he went out, in, went, went, went to the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where he prayed by himself for three hours. He asked others to pray to be there and pray while he prayed, but he was that was his own prayer between him and the Father. Then he was taken by the mob, he was he was uh tried and crucified the next day. 
So this is his last prayer with the disciples. So they're there, they're hearing him pray. And I'm going to read it one more time, verse 11. And now, I'm come, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I am come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Verse 21. That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Verse 22. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. I mean, how many times does he have to say it? How much does he have to say it? How does he have to say it for us to finally understand how important it is? Agape love is perfected in the church when the church becomes like Jesus. How does the church become like Jesus? When the Son, the man Christ Jesus, was one with the Father. It is the will of God for us to be one with God and with each other. It is not enough for us to claim we're one with ourselves or one with God that's not enough some churches have great friendship and fellowship among themselves but they don't have a whole lot of spirituality some churches are all spiritual they don't have a whole lot of relationship with each other it is it is not an either or friend brother sister it's not either or both of those are equally essential if we are going to have what God wants us to have The fully equipped saint who is skilled at ministry and is in unity with the body is the key to growth from God. I'm going to read that again. It's in the notes. The fully equipped saint who is skilled at ministry and is in unity with the body of Christ is the key to growth from God. It's not how good we sing and play. It's not even how how many adjectives we can fill our sermons up with and how complicated and oratorical we can sound when we speak. It's not how great our facility is. It's how committed, trained, and involved the saints are and whether or not they are in unity with each other. Just because this person is committed, trained, and involved doesn't mean they're in unity. In fact, some people I've come across like that are very judgmental of others. Because it's all about them. It's not about God. If it's all about you, you probably don't really love your brethren. You may have a few friends so that you can have an audience for your ju- being judgmental, for you being telling them what you want them to hear and telling them how smart you are and how much you got to figure it out, how much nobody else even knows what they're talking about. But if you're not in unity, your motive's wrong. Your motive is wrong. And let me tell you something. I believe with all my heart that motive is as critical as anything. If I'm in true unity, I don't have bad motives. If I'm not in unity, there's something wrong with my motives. I'm in competition with my brethren for position, for recognition, 
I can't be in unity with you and compete with you. If I'm in competition with a human being, any human being, over spiritual things, I am not pleasing God. I'm carnal. I'm not spiritual. Because God has given me a place in Him. I have a place in God. You have a place in God. Every single individual that's been created by God has their own specific place in God. You can't do my place. I can't do your place. So how can we compete? What is there to compete over? God has a plan for my life. And that's the overall picture. And on a day-to-day basis, his, He has a will for me each day. How can I be in competition with you over the will of God for me today? How can you be in competition with me over the will of God for me or you today? It's not possible. So if I'm in competition, I'm carnal, and I'm sure not in unity. For me to be in unity with you, I can't be in competition with you. I have to acknowledge and understand that God loves me and God loves you. He has a place for you and He has a place for me. And it's not about performance that's going to decide which one of us is in a certain place. It's the plan of God. So the question comes down to this. Am I going to find my place in God, do do His will? Am I going to do that? Or is it going to be all about me? All about how many people know my name? How many people think I'm a great guy, a great person? How many people give me accolades, pat me on the back? Scripture says, no flesh is going to glory in His presence. The word glory in that context means boast or take credit. The root word of that word in the Greek is opinion. No flesh is going to be allowed by God to use Him or the things of God as a means whereby He affects people's opinion of him. God will not let me do anything and he will not bless me doing anything where my motive for doing it is to cause you to have a positive opinion of me or my motive for not doing it is to keep you from having a negative opinion of me. That's glorying in his presence. Your motive's wrong. My motive would be wrong in that situation. He will not approve of it. So for us to have unity, I can't be in competition It can't be about me being above you or me being greater than you. It's about every part of the body being important. I don't know how I would function without a hand. But my hands would be useless without my forearm, without my upper arm. They'd be useless. My feet are important to me. But without my calves and thighs, what good would they do me? I can have a hand that works from here out theoretically, but from here to here, from wrist to shoulder, doesn't function at all. Doesn't function. Theoretically, it's possible. What good is that hand if I can't direct it here and there? Currently, we have a three-and-a-half-month-old grandbaby. He's just starting to try to reach for stuff. Well, he's been doing it for a week or so now. What's not noticeable, he's trying to reach for stuff. But it's so painful to watch sometimes you see how frustrated he is because it's there and he wants to grab it but he can't get this hand to get where he wants it to go now we all know that given a little time as long as he's healthy his coordination will 
improve, and all those parts will work together, and he'll just go, boom, he'll just get it. It'll be right there. But right now, it's not functioning like that. And so he's trying to get it, and he can touch it, and he can't keep it there, and whatever. But as the parts learn to work together, and they come in unity, it's just automatic. Well, how many churches aren't functioning because of that? I've often said this, that Christ is the head of the body. And the church is the body of Christ. But most of the time, it would appear as though the church is a, that Christ is a quadriplegic because of the effectiveness of the church in doing what he says, how he says do it, when he says do it. He can't get it to operate because it won't cooperate. If you've ever watched somebody run, the Olympics were just concluded. I didn't get to see it, but I've seen a clip of uh, Usain Bolt running the 100, 200. Nobody runs that fast without their body being in perfect coordination. Every single element of that body works perfectly to carry that man that smoothly, that fast, faster than anybody else has ever run. That's what the Lord's looking for in His church. He wants us to come into such a unity that we're in such coordination together that He can get us to respond quickly, immediately, and do exactly what He says, how He says it, when He, when he says do it. Then, then there's no limit on what He can accomplish. There's no limit. We spent this entire session talking about unity. And the relationship between unity and koinonia and the necessity of having a structure that allows koinonia to come into in the past, in, 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 into being. So if you have a structure that allows the relationships to begin to take place and grow so the members can develop healthy joints or relationships and koinonia comes to pass, because of koinonia, unity will come because of unity. The love of God will flow and growth and revival and harvest will take place. God bless you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this lesson and the others that you've heard and possibly will hear. But I beg of you again, please go back to the scripture and study yourself. And let this become a part of you. I don't desire to be a bonfire, I just desire to be the match. The match that starts the bonfire gets consumed by the bonfire. Nobody even remembers who the match was. Let these words just be a match in your life to inflame you with a desire to go to the Scripture, not just read, but to dig in it and study it and see what the Lord's really saying for you. My fellowship card says Pentecostal, but my heart says apostolic. Pentecostal is simply people that believe in the Spirit and speak in tongues. That's basically where the words come down to. But I'm an apostolic. My goal is, I'm not there, my goal is to do what the apostles did, the way they did it, for the reasons they did it, living the lifestyle they had, and most importantly, having the relationship with Jesus they had. I believe every 
every single element of my walk with God and ministry individually and all of ours collectively is clearly spoken of in this book. And I ask you again to study and search and pray that God can talk to you. God bless you.